Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. And so we started this retreat talking about ghosts. <laughs> and some of you had great cases how ghosts are real some of you believed in ghosts a lot and others you not so much and I think it's fun that Andrew was just talking about the ghosts of the past because I had a wild night last night I gotta tell you I'm, I'm tired right now I didn't sleep much you know why I was visited by three ghosts. (laughs) The ghost of retreat past, the ghost of retreat present, and the ghost of retreat future. And so this ghost of retreat past showed me images of my past, of the hurt and challenges I've experienced in my life. And the ghost of retreat present showed me some of the images, reminded me where I'm at in my life right now, how beautiful it is that I have this opportunity to share the Dharma, something I have strong faith in. And then the ghost of retreat future. Uh, you know, luckily this ghost didn't show me terrible images of death and hell like the ghost of Christmas past showed Ebenezer Scrooge but uh, you know it it gave me strong faith so that's what I want to talk about tonight these ghosts and what they showed me last night is that alright with (laughs) y'all? so last night heading off to bed bedtime and then just as as I'm trying to fall asleep this beaming being, otherworldly being arose and it didn't take me long to figure out this was the ghost of retreat past and she took me back to when I was living in the Gulf Coast and this memory wasn't far off because as I come to places on the Gulf Coast it's like something ingrained in my blood that brings in a lot of memories when I step under the sunshine and into the humidity and the, and the salty air and on the beach it reminds me of uh, when I grew up in, uh, the, the, in the Gulf Coast of Florida you know I'm always going to give love to 850 and, uh, and you know I love my time living in the Sunshine State. While it may have a bad reputation, I had a really good time growing up there. And so it showed me a memory about a decade ago. And about, about a decade ago, I was living with a bunch of friends. We lived in like a, kind of like a community space. You might call it like a punk house, but it wasn't really a punk house. It was like a punk house for like 
well-behaved aging punk rockers. Um, but, but it was very punk because it was a daycare center that over time people just started turning into a house. And so this house had like little reminders of its previous incarnation. Uh, on the walls there'll be like scribbles and we would see names like Sarah and Joey and then there would be like drawings on the walls and like down the staircase there was like red and yellow and blue like handprint, like paint handprints. And while that sounds adorable at the time, like uh, uh, when it was a daycare center, um, as time went on it kind of got creepy. Right? And it got even creepier when my, it was actually my mom told me this rumor, I don't know if she was just messing with me or not. But she's like, you know that place like had a terrible accident and it's like totally haunted. Okay. All right, so I tell all my friends this and I never saw anything, but my friends would tell me like, yeah, like it, I would hear voices. Like, yeah, like things would just move on their own. Like, yeah, this place is totally haunted. And being like the punk rockers we are, really community-based people, as bands would like go through town, like international bands coming through town, yeah, come sleep on our floor, come sleep on our couch. And the next morning they'd be like, you got kids? I like totally heard kids laughing. I'm like, oh yeah, that, that's Sarah and Joey. It's like the ghost of Sarah and Joey. <laughs> and uh, you know, I got so many wonderful memories of this house, of like living with my friends because while it may sound scary, like living in a haunted house, it totally wasn't because we were there together. We supported each other. Anytime somebody's afraid or needs anything, we got each other, wake each other up, see who's awake, who needs to talk, who needs something. And like living in this space, like it transformed me really. Like this is the place I, I um, was, I married my wife while I was living you know, there. I uh, got sober while living in this place. And it was quite odd, like a diverse cast, drug users and drunk people, straight edge people, sober people. And this is the place where I got sober, living just in a great group of friends. And so, you know, coming to the Gulf Coast reminds me of a lot of good times. But, you know, as all things change, this, this changed. And um, like I said, it was around 10 years ago, my wife ended up getting a job in Nashville. And we were like, yeah, let's go to Music City and see the opportunities we can develop there, the friendships we can develop there. And uh, we just packed up and left our life. I left my family and friends in Florida and headed out to Music City and set up shop there. And so my wife had a job at the time and she was working a lot of hours. And I didn't. I'd come to a town, I don't know anybody, don't really have much going on, don't have a job. And so I went from living in a space where I had people around me all the time, and I'm a very like community-based person, to living in a house in a town where I didn't know anybody. And if we're talking about hauntings, that's where the hauntings came. Not necessarily the children laughing, but the hauntings in my mind. And, it, you know, at that point in my life, uh, I was well into my recovery, well into my Buddhist practice. I was even like mentoring people in my program. And um, still, 
these images that wanted to kill me. You know, some of those scary, terrifying images of suicide started to arise when I was all by myself, lonely in that house. And, you know, these, these images, well, you know, certain situations bring them up. They're not new to me. These thoughts that want me dead. And as I was uh, unpacking in this house, you know, moving to the new place in Nashville, I was unpacking a lot of music. You know, I love collecting music records, cassette tapes, CDs. I still got CDs. And as I was putting away these CDs, uh, I, I came across one CD that brought up like this vivid memory. I had, it was this uh, CD of, of Nirvana. And it brought back a memory of me and my father. So my father, he worked uh, as a traveling guitar salesman. And so he, this was like pre-internet where you can just order guitars. So he would go into music shops and come with the catalog and see what they need and stuff like that. And so I would come along on trips with him uh, when I had the chance. And then so as like an 11 year old, right? And I remember myself as an 11 year old in this time, it was like, that's when things started to come up around images of death and suicide in my mind. And, you know, especially at the time, there was a huge stigma around this. Anytime somebody would die from that, I would hear people call them weak and, you know, sinful and wrong. And so the idea that these thoughts were arising in my mind made me feel a lot of shame. So I buried it down and didn't talk about it. So as I'm going around with my dad and I'm in this place where it's like, yeah, these thoughts are still arising, I'm being introduced to new things going into music shops. And the music shops of the day were definitely not the corporate music shops that they have now where people wear uniforms and have customer service representatives. I met some wild folks back in the day going into these guitar shops, right? And a main hobby me and my dad had was collecting music. And we'd go to these, you know, rough around the edges music shops. And I would go around looking for like B-sides, rarities, bootlegs of my favorite bands, bands like Nine Inch Nails and Mud Honey, Rollins bands, you know, Jane's Addiction, like that early 90s stuff when I was that age. And my favorite band being Nirvana at the time. And so as I'm going through looking for rarities and bootlegs, I go to the music shop, go right to end of the hard rock section and I flip through and I see this CD. I've never seen this CD before and it's, it's, it's like a poorly made bootleg, just black and white two-tone and I turn it around and I'm looking through it and as I'm looking through it I see some demos of their famous songs and live versions of their famous songs and as I go through it I see one that I've never seen before. One song and I still remember what it was like to see it. It was a song called I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. And when it hit me, it was like, I felt like they were telling my secret to me. The thing I didn't want to talk about, the thing I didn't want to see, it was right there, printed on that CD. 
And I felt like a mixed bag of emotions, one of which was like this fear of acknowledging, yeah, that's exactly where my mind goes. Even as a young age, I even knew, yeah, that's where my mind goes sometimes. And then the other thing was like, I felt like I belonged. Like, yeah, that's why I like this music. They get me. They honor that thing that I'm afraid to honor. And in that moment, like, I felt cool. Maybe not like trendy cool, but cool. It was like, it's okay, like the cooling off. Like somebody just poured some water on a fire. It's like, yeah, this is okay. And as I came back to this place, like as an adult <laughs> coming back into Nashville, looking at the CD and thinking about the memory of me as like a young 90s kid wearing my baggy clothes, going through the guitar shops with my dad, having this secret in my mind. And those same visions were coming up when I was alone in my house. And luckily with this memory, I had this practice of compassion. And I just sat in meditation. And I visualized this younger me. And I let him know, it's okay. It's okay that you feel this way. It's okay that you feel shame. It's okay that you feel lost. It's okay that you're looking for a way out. I love you. I love you no matter what. I'm here for you. And I had that sense of like empathy with myself. That a lot of this fear and a lot of this, you know, vibhava tanha, the craving for non-existence just feels very young and confused in me. And so I brought this nurturing quality in and I was free. I was free in that moment, free to be with the fear in my mind, the escape in my mind, the shame in my mind. And I was cool with it. And it's quite beautiful when we make it over the hump into the beauty. Because when we find this place of beauty within, it expands outward. So last night after this visiting ghost showed me this memory, we said our goodbyes, I said my thank yous. This ghost was sweet. <laughs> so the next ghost came to visit. It was this large ghost. He had like a big red beard. It was the ghost of retreat present. <laughs> and so he took me on a more uh, current memory. And so, yeah, these days I live in Nashville and I got those friends I was looking for, a lot of them up here, a lot of them out there, right? And I, I feel that sense of community now that I have Wild Heart Meditation Center. I love Wild Heart, I love y'all. And if you're in this room, you are wild heart. And I treat my sangha like a gang. Right? I treat, treat you like family. So welcome to the family. Whether you believe it or not, you can't get out of this. You're in it. And so as I have this you know, ghost of retreat present, he showed me uh, uh, the compassion within me. And so these days, you know, I work at a lot of treatment centers. I bring Buddhist meditation to the treatment centers. And every Thursday night, I, I teach the same group Buddhist meditation classes in a treatment center. And in this memory, this ghost showed me, um, we were all sitting around in a circle doing loving kindness meditation. May I be at ease, may I be at peace, may I be kind and gentle with myself, may I be filled with loving kindness. And uh, we opened it up. So I opened it up to discussion. 
And this young, beautiful, intelligent woman shares with the group. She goes, I hate myself. And then instantly, the group started like uh, almost attacking her with compliments. How could you ever hate yourself? You're so beautiful. How could you ever hate yourself? You're so smart. How can you ever hate yourself? You're so likable. <laughs> and then I look over at her, and now she's like slumped over and completely defeated. She's like, one, I hate myself. Now I can't even love myself. I do all these things wrong. And then I just had to stop the, like, the barrage of compliments happening. And I said, hey, okay, that's cool. Thanks for all the compliments with her, but seriously. As I told them, raise your hand if you ever hate yourself. Every single hand up in the room. I said, yeah, it's okay. From time to time, we all have thoughts of self-hatred. It's okay. And then with that permission, it was like quite awesome because we went around the room and just named things that are challenging. Named things that we really didn't like about ourselves. Uh, one person says, uh, I hate myself because I feel like I'm a bad, bad father. Uh, I hate my trauma. Uh, I feel like a failure. I hate that I never finished school. I hate that I'm turning into my mom. Uh, I feel like I don't matter. And it was like this wonderful validation that from time to time we all have these feelings. And then we just put our hands on our hearts and just wish compassion towards ourselves as we related to one another in this beautiful way. Uh, I think in that moment, that's like really, that's what compassion's about. It's that love that we can share this together. Because what happens is when we practice compassion, we find space for those feelings that aren't so good. Right? They feel really scary, really hurtful, when we find space for those, our heart expands. And then we have space for others' hurt. You know, like emotions are contagious. If I started yelling right now, y'all would probably feel some excitement. If I started crying right now, y'all may even literally cry. And so it's because that contagiousness that we can feel with each other. And so when an emotion arises in the room, I am feeling it right now. And when I have compassion and a place to not be reactive, not jump to fixing, not jumping to controlling, but to say, yeah, it is like this right now. That's okay. And without running away, not cowering, or not defeating, just saying, yeah, it's okay that we go through this. That's the moment of you know compassion with one another. And that is like a fucking superpower. This empathy is a fucking superpower. And so this ghost of retreat, uh, present, uh, showed me this. He said, yeah, you got that superpower. <laughs> Thanks for practicing it. And then, uh, you know, this ghost made its way. Tried to get a couple hours of sleep. Got a few hours in, but uh, it was around 4 a.m. I had another visitor. Oh, my gosh. The ghost of retreat future. And this ghost was extremely sweet. Oh, I love the ghost of retreat future. He was like eight feet tall and had like large black robes on and like glowing eyes, but he was like super sweet. And he sat on the bed and we sat on the bed together. 
and we chanted. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. So me and the ghost of retreat future sat around and chanted homage to the Buddha. And we did this at the beginning of the retreat, right? Paying homage to the Buddha. Because I have a deep sense of gratitude. And every day, at least every day, I like to <coughs> chant this because it reminds me to bring a sense of gratitude in towards you know, that guy that lived 2,600 years ago that figured out the end of suffering, that gave me a path. And as this has been a part of my practice for a very long time, I'm starting to discover new expressions of this homage to the Buddha and what it really means. And so it was 2019, during the COVID lockdowns, that us at Wildheart, I think some of you were part of this class, we did the Living the Dharma series. And we did this over Zoom for five months. And every month, it was an intensive on a particular topic. So we'd spend one month on insight practice, another month on death contemplation, another month on um, engaged Buddhism, Buddhist activism. And this particular month we covered was uh, on devotional practices. And uh, the visiting teacher that came to visit us was a guy named Yang O. Oh. Yeah, he lives in uh, Tennessee. He lives in Chattanooga. He's one of us. And he was offering these expressions and understandings of these devotional practices. And one of which was talking about this homage to the Buddha. Buddha Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. And what he did was, piece by piece, uh, went into what each word really means. And this word Namo, the first word Namo, uh, which we most often translate as homage, like homage to the Buddha. But he said in a more literal translation of this, it's, it's the action of to return your life. And when he described it that way, I realized that's exactly what I've been trying to do in this practice, return my life. Really what I've been trying to do my whole life is return my life. You know, at certain points of my life, I just want to give this life back. I don't want it anymore. I want to go up to heaven and go up to God and go up to the customer service desk and say, you know, this life sucks. You can fucking have it back. I return this life. And so numerous times I've been trying to return my life through dangerous behaviors, through addictive behaviors, through harming, self-harming. I didn't want this life anymore. I've been trying to return it until I found this practice. Now I have something to actually return my life to. As life becomes too much, the true relief I find in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, this triple gem, if I remember to return my life. So every morning, I say this, Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa, to return my life to the Buddha. 
with my own volition, my own wits, I go to terrible places. You know, it's like, Jesus, take the wheel. Buddha, take the wheel. Go. <laughs> I'm crashing this car too much. Like, you take it. And that's been beautiful. As I want to kill myself, I kill myself to the Buddha. All this self-centered thinking. I, me, and mine. Oh, I can give that up. Buddha, you have that. And so, what I mean is, I don't, I don't mean that like I pay homage to some spiritual deity that's going to take care of my life for me. I still have to do this. But what I'm returning to is the bliss, the beauty, and the hope of awakening. The Buddha means the awakened one. Buddha means awakening. And this is a reminder that I have the Buddha in me and you have the Buddha in you. There is an awakened nature in me. I just got to remember that it's there and remember to return my life to that place that is awakened. And I think it's quite ironic in my story that this awakening in Sanskrit is called nirvana. I remember listening to an interview Kurt Cobain gave. If you don't know, uh, Kurt Cobain was the singer for Nirvana. I feel silly saying that. Uh, but I think it's appropriate. I don't know where everybody's coming from. Um, in an interview, he said, oh, you know, like, all these, like, punk rock bands and, and you know, these noisy bands always had these really, like, tough names and scary names. And he was like, I want, I want a really beautiful name for my band. And he's like, that's, that's such an appropriate band name for that band. Because you think about it. Nirvana had feedback, had noisiness, occasional off-key singing, and they were like rough around the edges, but it was fucking beautiful, wasn't it? And that's kind of what we're going for here. Dukkha, rough around the edges. Life has its loss, separation, its disjointedness, its feedback, its off-tune singing, and off-tune life. But it's beautiful if we let it be. If we remember to embrace with love, it can be beautiful. And so just to you know, go over where we've been through, we talk about this quality of dukkha. And this is kind of where we start. And it's tough, I understand. We start with the bad news first. All right, that dukkha is inevitable in life, and dukkha is all the ways of pain, loss, separation, aging, sickness, and death, sorrow, sorrow, lamentation, grief, and despair, being separated from what is dear, and being in company of what is not dear. We all experience this. That's, that's unavoidable. Let's be real about that, and let's be uh, using that as a catalyst for love rather than hatred. And so there is a point in my practice, and you may be there, that I was checking in with my teacher, the Venerable Paniwadi. And I'm talking about all this stuff that I'm talking to you about, right? Oh, there's so much hatred in my mind. I hate myself. And, oh, I'm addicted. And, you know, like a lot of uh, poor me, <laughs> a lot of, like, hard times, right? And she told me, stop. You need to get out of dukkha land. 
She called it Duca Land. I don't know if she knew this because maybe like I'm a Disney guy, but it, whether she did this on purpose or not, of course I think of Disneyland. But I think of Duca Land. Like somebody opened up an amusement park and all the rides suck. And they have lines. And it's just a line. And you're just going around the line until like you decide to get off, right? And like, but if you do get on a ride, it's just like that bump, bump, bump. It's just a bunch of bumps, right? And that's kind of what Duca Land is like for me. So she's like, it's time to move forward. We have four noble truths, not just one. So what she offered me was the beauty and happiness that is available in this practice. And she's, she came to me in a very appropriate time in my life. You know, sometimes they say that when you're ready, the teacher will appear. I was ready. I was ready to move forward. It may be time to move forward. And she said, there is a happiness. There's a happiness not born of this world. And she said, when you develop a happiness not born of this world, it means the world can't take it away from you. And sometimes we call this contentment or, or you know, something we play it down. But I love that she said happiness. Because it gave me permission to be happy. But not this lesser happiness. You know, normally think we happiness is when things go our way, when we get what we want, when we have a spike of dopamine or an emotional joy. But this is a genuine happiness. A happiness, like I said, not born of this world. As life has its inevitable sorrows, can I meet it with the heart of love? That's the happiness I'm looking for. It's not dependent on the conditions of the world. It's not dependent on the conditions of our body. It's not even dependent on the conditions of our emotions. It's something else. It's a spiritual goodness. The materials of the world are unreliable by nature. The spiritual is the deathless, this undying sense of well-being when we touch into that love. And this is all about relationship. What's your relationship to the material world? As joy, pleasure arises, remember to meet it with gratitude. As pain inevitably arises, remember to meet it with compassion. And that's that spiritual goodness that we can fall on. This peacefulness, that peace is the highest happiness. <laughs> Peace and love, peace and love. And so there may be a seductive quality and there may be a question mark. What does that mean, a happiness not born of this world? I wish I could tell you. This is something I uh, encourage you to see for yourself. Because it has driven me into so many beautiful things. And so this practice, right, this um, practice we're looking at of the Dharma that leads to this awakening, what we call nirvana. In our tradition, we use Pali. I want to make that clear. That nirvana is a Sanskrit word, and nibbana is the Pali word. So you'll hear us say nibbana, same thing. Uh, Pali is the commoner's dialect of Sanskrit. 
So this is like the, you know, the working class dharma, right? blue collar dharma. We use the commoner's language. And so while the dharma has been passed down 2,600 years and I, I, I have this deep gratitude for it, we got to do it. And so as we look at the core teachings of the Buddha, the way I like to look at the core teachings of the Buddha, and I really have trouble seeing it any other way than a compassion practice. We start with the first noble truth. There is pain. There is loss. There is separation. Dukkha. And then we look at the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is reactive, repetitive craving. Tanha. Third noble truth. Remember this one. That there is a higher happiness of peace. Embrace the freedom of Nibbana. And then we can do so by acting in accordance to the lessons of the Dharma, the Eightfold Path. And so while we do this in compassion, we embrace, the first thing, embrace pain. Embrace pain. And when we embrace pain, we can let go of the reactive and repetitive attempts to avoid what is painful. And just by the simple act of compassionately embracing pain and setting aside the causes of suffering, of hatred and greed, naturally we are awake. In this moment, that's where we can see the freedom that comes from this, the cooling off of Nibbana. You know this word Nibbana, we like to say this a lot, that Nibbana in ancient India was a cooking term. And it meant to remove a boiling pot from its heat source so it would cool off. And so it's a very experiential. When you're bubbling up with reactivity and hatred and greed, embrace the pain and just be cool with that pain. The experience of compassion has a cooling effect if you keep going. And then uh, it's a lesson for another time, but remember the Dharma of the Eightfold Path. So I like how uh, Stephen Batchelor explains this. He's like a, a forefront of secular Buddhism. I don't know if I fully align with secular Buddhism, but I respect it. That he uses the acronym ELSA. Fucking Disney adult, you know what I'm thinking. <laughs> what am I thinking? What's the song? Let it, let it go, let it go. I should be singing more. And so what do we let go of? Our reactive and repetitive attempts to hide from dukkha. Embrace pain, let go of reactivity, see the freedom, and act in accordance to the Eightfold Path. Embrace the pain, let go of reactivity, and see the freedom, act in accordance to the Eightfold Path. Elsa, Elsa. And so this is what we do in this practice, but there's also an inspiration to remember if we keep doing this, right? That awakening here and now, awakening here and now, if you awaken to this moment, there is freedom. And if we keep on doing this, awakening to this moment, awakening to this moment, awakening to this moment, it turns into a habit, and that's where we reach true awakening, full awakening, the enlightenment of our hardship. 
when it becomes our default mode to be with pain, with compassion. And I don't want to stray away from the hope of awakening. Buddha means awakening. Buddhism is wake-upism. Enlightenment, totally fucking possible, and I believe it. And that belief, that faith in awakening, has really done wonders for me. When shit gets tough, I remember I'm doing this in service of my awakening. I remember when, like, one of the first times, like, I was, like, hanging out with my first Dharma teacher. We were going for a walk. And he's, like, wearing the robes, the bald head. He's living that monk life, right? And I remember thinking, I wonder what his mind is like. And I think I, more and more, I think I know what it's like because I've done this work. I just followed where he was taking me. And that hope, that's what really got me sober because I wasn't going to get sober to live a good life. I wasn't getting sober to fit in with society. I wasn't getting sober to be a worker among workers. What got me sober? I didn't want to cloud the mind anymore, cloud it from my potential for awakening. And so this um, wholesome drive that Andrew talked about, that cravings a cause of suffering, but we, we some desire, from some strong determination, what Paniwadi calls the great aspiration, that is wholesome, more than wholesome. It's the most wholesome. I like not the clothes you wear, not the way you do your hair, but it's you. I like the way you are right now, the way down deep inside you, not the things that hide you, not your toys, they're just beside you, but it's you. I Let's just sit for a moment. 